The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes from the AUA 2022 instructional course, Evidence-Based Primary Hypospadias Repair. For more great content, such as the episode to follow, we look forward to seeing you in Chicago for AUA 2023. All right, so there's the test. So now we're ready to begin, okay? So here's the first case. And mostly look at the pictures. I didn't know how the format was going to be because you're going to see the, the questions, you know, the, the answers. answers in just a moment. So the question is, you're looking at that patient in the office. What are you going to tell the family about that patient, okay? And then the responses are down there about whether, you know, about the surgery, what it would be, et cetera, et cetera. So look at that for a minute. Now I'm going to advance the slide. Because we can't put in our answers until it's the, on next the next slide, slide. shows so up. See now, so on that patient, A is if you did surgery, it'd only be cosmetic. B, maybe you just want a circumcision to remove the foreskin. C, you should do a hypospadias repair with a circumcision, or D, hypospadias repair with either a circumcision or a perpucioplasty, whatever the family wants. So those are your options. Choose the one that best fits what you would do for that patient. So now we'll see what people said. Okay, interesting. So some people think that it's mostly, that this is mostly a cosmetic procedure. And uh, the first two, that's basically what it's saying. And then um, the, op- the bottom one for doing surgery. So let's look at these now. About half and half. Yeah. So. This is a kind of a, an important point to begin with. If you think it's mostly about appearance, you still shouldn't use the word cosmetic. We do this all the time, but it's not the right word, and we'll tell you why in a minute. The birth defect is abnormal structure, and according to the plastic surgeons, Cosmetic surgery changes normal structures, like a breast augmentation, and reconstructive surgery affects abnormal structures, like a birth defect, even if the only reason you're doing it is for aesthetics. So if you have a cleft lip and there's no functional problem, but you're gonna fix it because it looks bad, that's reconstructive surgery not cosmetic surgery. All of us say it all the time, the cosmetic appearance, and it's wrong, okay? And it's important why it's wrong, as we're gonna show in just a minute. So again, reconstructive surgery is what we do. Whatever you choose to do on a hypospadias, it's reconstructive, all right? And why does that make a difference right there? It's a trigger word especially for for moms when they hear cosmetic they think i'm not going to put my child through something that doesn't have to be done and it's a very different thought 
than reconstructive surgery. And it, it really makes a big difference how they perceive things that potentially are going to impact this little boy for the rest of his life. So we really have just banned the word cosmetic. Not that we don't care about the outcomes from the appearance, but it's just that it's such a difficult word. So we use aesthetic, and that really seems to have less of those implications and less of that visceral, visceral reaction that parents have. So yes, it's an extraordinarily important component of all hypospadias repair. It's just that we need to refer to it as something Use the different. proper term, yeah. So then this fits the same thing. So this is the idea that, okay, the foreskin looks funny. We'll take that off, but we don't have to fix the hypospadias because there's no functional thing. And those of you who answered it would just be for cosmesis or aesthetics are also making the statement that there's no functional aspect to this, okay? So let's look at whether that's true or not. So this is our data that um, uh, is in review right now, and one of them is in press. And basically, if you look at men who have no glands fusion, like this child has no glands fusion, 80% of them spray when they pee, 80% of them spray. Now the babies don't, the parents don't tell you, oh, when he pees, it they goes all over. They all say, we've seen him pee and it and comes it out fine. straight because it doesn't really tend to do that until they're tall no, enough older. to reach way above the toilet. So usually somewhere between eight to 12 is when the family will finally start catching that urine spraying everywhere. You also see in this bottom picture, see the angle that the urine is coming out on that man. It's, it's going down. Right towards his shoes. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not in, in that case at the beginning of his stream, it's a compact stream but it's going down. And you do hear parents will say, I've, I've seen him pee with that as diaper on, it's deflected down some, and you maybe you just brush that off. But in this man too, the other thing that happens in, when people are old enough where you can kind of find out what's happening, is when the pressure in the bladder is high, when the bladder's full, it'll come out with a more compact and forceful stream, which is what you see on, on the first picture. And the picture next to it was when he was nearly done urinating, and the, and the urine just starts going in every which direction, and that's when it gets on his clothes. So men who grow up with this five, six, seven, eight times a day have the opportunity to have an accident from it. And some of them will tell you, yeah, it doesn't happen that often, but they always have to wonder if it's going to happen. Okay, so it's not, the, the, the abnormal anatomy of the opening results in spraying in a large number of these, and not all, but in a large number of them. So it's not just about appearance. And this is when we talk about glands fusion. That's the normal. There's, and this is a good thing to train your eyes to do. When you look at the meatus down to the corona, it, in a child, it should be roughly four to five millimeters. In an adult, it's eight to 10 millimeters. So we're talking about from the bottom of the meatus to the, to the corona. corona. So that's just something that um, there's normal data in at least children, which is where that four and a half millimeters comes from. I haven't seen it published in adults, but we've measured lots of adults, and that data really the average is 10 millimeters, so a full centimeter. 
and, and it's just so good to know because that's what we draw and explain to families. Who cares if the meatus is a little big, if there's a normal amount of glands fusion around that meatus, then it's very unlikely they're going to have functional issues. On the other hand, if there's no or outside of a range of, of normal glands fusion, they will. So if you look at the bell-shaped curve, on the normal non-hypospadiac boys that were measured, anything less than 2.5 millimeters is out of a range of normal. That's your less than, or your more than two standard deviations um, outside of normal. So this is an easy way to tell when you're looking at a boy with distal hypospadias, do they need surgery? Well, if they have normal glands fusion, no. I mean, normal anatomy is normal anatomy. But if they don't have normal anatomy, don't be so quick to say, oh, that doesn't look like that's going to be a problem at all, because as we show, 80% of men with that anatomy have problems controlling their stream. And you wouldn't believe the stories they tell about how they have to pinch their head of their penis in a certain special way to make sure it goes into the toilet, or this one guy who would pee into his hand every time he went so that it would go directly down into the urinal. I mean, peeing is a part of our lives every day, and so it, it really, you know, when you sit and have the time to talk to these adults who've never had surgery, it's a big part of their lives that they've had to adjust for in various ways. So here's the other thing. How many, you know, here's the answer, but who knew this? How many children, patients, with distal hypospadias have penile curvature? And it's more than you think. It's a third. It's a third of them, okay? We found that in the adults with uncorrected hypospadias. A third of them had penile curvature. You see the average was 30 degrees. And Which then, means half were less than 30, half were 30 or more. And then um, the same data has been published um, a number of years ago in, in, a, in, in just in boys reporting that a third of them had ventral curvature. Now, the extent of ventral curvature makes a difference, but the fact is, as we'll show in a minute, curvature is a very important thing. You're going to hear that from us this whole course. Curvature is very important. And so knowing, if you're going to tell somebody that, well, I'm not sure we need to do anything, well, you can't do that until you, first you check the glands fusion, and secondly, you check to see if there's curvature of the penis. Okay. And those very distal bends, like you sometimes see in boys with distal hypospadias, make intercourse very difficult. When that glands is trying to bend over, it, it's kind of functionally a, a problem for some of them. So then about the circumcision thing, nobody answered this question. So we'll just quickly say that a third of patients and, and patients that we encountered, they don't want a circumcision. And when you do a circumcision on people that don't want a circumcision because you tell them that's your only option, then you get that dis decisional regret response from people. It's not what they really wanted, but nobody answered that. And so this is, you know, this is the truth. And it's just important to emphasize that because we see patients all the time who were told by their first pediatric urology consultation that, no, you have to have a circumcision when you do a hypospadias repair. So we're just emphasizing that you don't have to do that. So that's the first one. So now let's do the second question. So look at this patient. The arrow is pointing to the meatus, okay? And so the question is, would you plan, do you routinely or not do an artificial erection on a, on a repair in a boy that is, looks like this. 
Okay, so that's the question. And we'll move to the next slide so that you can enter your answers. Yeah, so no, I wouldn't do it because you can overfill and create bending that doesn't really exist. No, because the corpus spongiosum you could see was intact going all the way out to the corona. No, because most boys with a dyslipospadias don't have significant curvature. Or yes, because you don't need much curvature for that to be a functional problem. So give your answer. All right, looks like we're good. That's great. Yeah, good for y'all. We will be the first to admit that in our pre-days back at Children's, there were kids that we didn't necessarily do an artificial erection on, especially MIPs yeah. who'd already been circumcised or things along those lines. And I specifically remember working with the fellow. I usually didn't get the fellow. The fellow was in the other room. <laughs> I usually got to work with the interns or the second years. But I was working with the fellow, and he said, do we really need to do an artificial erection? I said, yeah, we're just going to do it. And lo and behold, that kid's penis went like 40 degrees left, and there was no indication that that was going to happen. And, and he and I just looked at each other, and we were like, okay, we're going to do an artificial erection every hypospadias patient. So remember we said that a third of uh, boys with distal hypospadias have curvature. You, you don't necessarily know who those are. So yes, an artificial erection should be done. That's what all of y'all answered. So we'll just kind of click on through this. Um, it's not true. I published this, but at the time, A, we weren't measuring the curvature. So those were just guesstimates. And B, um, when we saw boys with a distal meatus that had curvature more than 30 degrees, we classified them as proximal, so they got taken out of it. That's why we didn't know the number that had a distal meatus that had curvature because we, we didn't categorize them that way. So, any event. And, and this came up yesterday. If you were in the session, the very last session of the day, they showed a, a patient that had cordy without hypospadias that had, you know, 45 degrees of curvature, and there were a lot of comments made that, well, I'm not sure that we'll wait and see if that's going to be a problem with sexual intercourse and all that. Well, the answer is already available, okay? So, again, it takes very little curvature for people to have sexual dysfunction and to have worry about it. Even the people who are, why was that boy, think about that, that 14-year-old boy convinced his parents to bring him to the doctor, or his parents said, you're going to go see the doctor about your bent penis. And all the doctors in the room were like, yeah, you know, well, let's wait till you start having sex and find out if that's a problem or not. Imagine the boy's worry about going on, on a date Eight. in case it leads to the next steps. And have you ever thought about things from the girl's perspective, putting her hands down there and feeling something that just clearly is not quite not right, right either? So these things kind of go both ways and there's zero data that I found that have looked at the sexual partners and discomfort that they might experience or the limitations in certain positions etc. But we hear it all the time because we do older teens and adults with hypospadias too. In fact we operate on adults every week so that's part of where this comes from because you know we didn't see those patients in the past so it's been really eye-opening. So And there's it, a really funny story. There's a patient who uh, was a cordy without hypospadias, an adult male, 45, who had 40 degrees of bending. He and his wife had managed 
there were a lot of positions they couldn't do, but the positions they had found worked for them until he slipped a disc in his back. <laughs> and then after he had back surgery, he could no longer do the weird lordosis that he needed to do for them to comfortably have intercourse. So there are, you know, people will compensate in order to have sex and things along those lines in lots of different ways, but you can't imagine what's going to go through this boy's life you know, when you see it. So it, it, it can be a really big deal for, for many of them. Okay, so this is that same patient. We did an artificial erection, and he's one of those patients that has lots of curvature, as you can see there. So now, what's your plan in the operating room? Which of these options are you going to do now for the repair? So we'll go to the next slide so you can answer. You're gonna resect all that core D and do a tip, or you're gonna do a plication and do a tip, or you're gonna do a single corporotomy with a graft with a stage repair, or you're going to do three corporotomies and a stage repair. So those are your choices. See, people are responding more slowly on this one. <laughs> this is hard. It's easier if you've talked about it ahead of time. So that's, the next time you see this, maybe it'll be an easier response. Okay. All right, I think we're about ready. We're about ready. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so let's go through and, and look at what all of that means. So the first thing I'll say, well, this idea of core D excision, the reason that many of you know that I've spoken for years about a stopping to say the word core D is because it's confusing. It's confusing to us, but it's also confusing to parents. And we continue to see people who, who write in their operative reports, I did a thorough core D excision and the penis was straight. And that goes back to the idea that the, the, the reason for the curvature is due to tissues on the outer surface of the tunica albuginea restricting it so that when it tries to fill, it can't stretch. And if you clean all that off, then it'll be able to stretch. That's what core D excision is. And the problem is that that was all believed until artificial erection came along and found out that you can clean it all completely off and the penis is almost always, not always, but almost always still bent. So cordy excision is not the, the best answer unless you, whatever dissection you do, you have to do another artificial erection. It'll seem like it's better. You take some of the tension off, but, but it's not. And, and we reported to patients who came to us after core D excision that 83% of them had persistent recurrent curvature that was more than 30 degrees. But this is a good time to just review that penile curvature has three reasons that it occurs, short skin, short urethra, short corpora. So you'll notice that when we're talking about 30 degrees, we've degloved the penis. You can do that through your circumcision incision or do what we do now, which is a midline incision ventrally 
but we're not talking about the skin bending. And of course, you all see skin bending on many of the distal patients. It's obvious to us and to the parents that they have shorter skin on the undersurface of the penis than on the dorsal surface of the penis. So once that's released, most of those boys, are, two thirds of them, are going to be straight. And then one third, you'll see some bending of various degrees. So it's that category that we're talking about. It's not cordy, it's short skin that seems like it straightens two thirds of your distal patients. Does that make sense? Okay. And, and this I'll just ask you, if you're doing, if you were people that answered that, please don't do that anymore, seriously. I mean, I'm responsible for a lot of that and, and we just don't do it. The problem is that dorsal plications are not reliably durable. And the more the curvature is, the less dur reliable they are. Think about this for a minute. So the whole idea is that the penis is bent because the corporal sheath enclosing the erectile tissue forms shorter on this side than it did on that side. And you're going to pull that straight with a stitch. Imagine this is the game we play with parents. We say, okay, everybody knows how much force is in an erect penis. It, all that force is evenly distributed because it's straight. When you bend it, you get all that tension on this side. When you put a stitch here, it works in the operating. You put the stitch in, your feeding direction, oh, it's straight, perfect, you move on. But that stitch, every time that kid has a post-operative erection, you haven't done anything to relieve the reason why it was bent. So you're counting on that stitch to last indefinitely, I guess, and the problem is that most people don't check, especially in a stage repair, or if you get a complication, you go to close a fistula or something, how many of you, just think to yourself, how many of you do another artificial erection? And many, many of those patients have recurrent curvature. We reported that, um, I didn't show it on that slide, sorry. Um, we reported that of patients who come to us who have had a dorsal plication, and we check an artificial erection on them, 70% have curvature 30 degrees or more, 70%. And it makes sense. If you think about an adult erection, okay, a straight erection, if you tried to bend that penis 30 degrees when it was really erect, that's You're not, not gonna, gonna really happen, happen right? So now if you imagine a penis that's bent 30 or 40 or 50 degrees, imagine the force that it would take to straighten that out. It's a tremendous amount of force and it's nearly impossible to think of a suture of any size, strength, or form that's gonna hold that for the rest of that person's life. So we don't, we don't ever, ever, ever do a dorsoplication for that kind of curvature. We're gonna come back to that later. If it measures more than 30 degrees, this patient clearly has more than that. We're not gonna do a dorsoplication. Um, I don't remember, did anybody answer this? No. no. Okay, so we'll just move on. The problem with single, uh, uh, single corporotomies is that the more the degree of curvature, again, the less likely that one incision is going to be enough, and, and we'll talk about that again later. And so th this is what we do. Uh, and we check the results of our straightening 
on each subsequent operation. We're doing stage repair, or if a patient has a fistula or a glands dehiscence, we check the erection again. So we check erections every single time. And that's how we know that these three incisions that we make are durable and that they work because we check it again in six months. And if we're doing a, sta you know, a stage repair of multiple stages, every time they come in, we check the erection again. So um, we know that that works and that very few people are going to come back with another, you know, more curvature. Now, the other point that's on this slide that's important to make, every single distal hypospadias we see, we tell the family, Probably not going to happen, but just so you know, we're going to check an artificial erection. If you've got 30 degrees or more curvature, everything we've talked about is going to change. We're going to do a stage repair. It's going to be more than one operation, and we'll talk about that after surgery if that's what we did, but you heard me say it. I mean, that's what, how we manage that, but we tell it to every single patient because this happens. This case happens. Yes? Well, it depends. Can yeah, so most commonly, we're talking about a stack now, so we've straightened and closed the skin, and then we're back to harvest the graft. When you check that erection, the most common reason that we see is because he's had some shortening of his, of his um, ventral penile skin. So many of these kids, especially with proximal hypospadias, will start off with only nine millimeters of skin in comparison to 40 millimeters of dorsal skin. So you've moved around three quarters of their skin to this distance, and some of that is gonna shrink. So most of the time when you see that recurrent bending, it's skin related, and when you release that skin, and then oftentimes you'll need to release that proximal urethrostomy because it will have gotten pulled up just a little bit. It's not that the core, that's Rarely. exactly right. So we see that well less than 2% of the time. And in those kids, it's usually gonna be the 130 degreeers that come back with a, a pretty minor bend. So it's almost always gonna be just releasing the skin and releasing that proximal urethrostomy that got lifted up and the penis will almost always be straight in that circumstance. Obviously, if you had a slight bend, you could put a plication in mm -hmm. then you know, it's not going to hurt anything, and that is easy, and you can actually feel that with your forceps. You won't feel the tension, and I highly encourage all of y'all, we've got a YouTube video that you can see. Just try to pick up with, you know, you have to use AdSense. Your .5s won't even do it. If you try to pick up dorsally at 12 o'clock and straighten that penis while your assistant is doing an artificial erection, the force that it takes for you and how far apart you have to put your forceps in order to get a penis like that straight is just tremendous. It's yeah. tremendous. It'll convince you very quickly why dorsal plications don't hold up. And, and why and, they do okay for 10 or 20 degrees yeah. because you don't feel that same extent of force there. Historically, the reason all this got going was because John Duckett, you know, learned to do cordia excision, and then artificial erection came out in 1974, and he started doing artificial erections and realized, well, some of these are still bent, and so you shorten the longer side or you lengthen the shorter side. Shortening the longer side is easier, so he put implications. But if you go back and read his articles, the first couple of articles he published, he talked about doing that for 15 to 20 degrees of curvature. And then all of a sudden, that became all curvature. 
That's how it happened. And so then he had a big influence. He told everybody, just you can always placate. And, and so that's how people came to have these beliefs. But that's not what we have encountered, and that's why we are making these points. And, and we you. also talk about how the folks who have inherited Douglas practice now no yeah. longer placate for anything more than 15 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole nother topic about them. The main difference in those patients and these patients that we're talking about today is that they don't have the urethra, the meatal defect. And so you can alter just briefly what you do because you don't need to remake a normal gland. And you don't have to worry about the tension right up here where you're sewing. Yeah. So in those patients, depending on how much bending they have, in some of them, you can mobilize the urethra extensively and then do um, the, the corporotomies under it, and, and there won't be, there'll be enough laxicity of the urethra that you don't need to transect the urethra, okay? But there are others of them where they have more bending like that, and, and you can't, and so then you transect the urethra Okay, and then in those you're either going to do a stag or a stack repair, so that's going to be a more than one. So we make two urethrostomies, and, like a and Johansson, a Johansson type thing. Yes. 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 Okay. But here's the bottom line. Down at the bottom of the slide, that there's the take-home message on distal hypospadias is that the characterization of hypospadias should be based on curvature and not on meatal location. This case is a prime example of that. You can't treat this case as a routine distal, even though the meatus is on the glands. What if it's a, uh, there's no hypospadias at all, it's Yeah, that's what we, you just missed that. This, yeah. <laughs> He'll fill you in, the yeah. potty break, right? Yeah, so we mobilize and do the corporotomies, but leave the urethra. So here's another patient with a distal meatus. So what would you do with this boy? And obviously what we're looking at here is a more flat urethral plate, maybe a narrow urethral plate. Small glands. Small glands. So which of these would you be inclined to do? We'll go to the slide that has a thing. So some people are giving preoperative testosterone so that they don't have to incise the urethral plate. Anybody doing that? Some people would do a matu or a tip or a grafted tip is a G-tip. Okay, so take a second and think about what you would do with that patient. Okay, I think we're there. And let's see. So there are your answers. Let's talk about these. It's funny that it shows you that it twice. twice. Yeah. So, you know, this is coming mostly from one center, and all we'll say is that they haven't published any data on that yet. So we'd, I'd like to see a publication rather than well, there opinion. was a presentation that said testosterone doesn't increase complications, right? But is that the question? Shouldn't the question be, 
does testosterone decrease complications? And that we haven't seen. The questions you ask for clinical research are extraordinarily important. But we wouldn't give a blood pressure medicine to somebody with normal blood pressure and say, well, it didn't do it, you know. It's not hurting him. (laughs) Yeah, now the question is, is medication that we give helping? And, And so this is important. The reason we start with that is that this case, this kind of case, emphasizes how important it is to do a correct deep tip incision. And, and, and this goes back to there's a couple of articles that started all of this questioning about whether you can do a tip repair when you have a flatter or narrower plate. And if you go back and look at the paper by Serhan, which is referenced down there, that's a picture from their article of the appearance of the urethral plate after they did their tip incision, after the tip incision. Up above are our pictures on this case. So there's the boy, and then this is his intraoperative picture, and and, uh, that measured four millimeters wide, four millimeters wide, and then after we incised it, it measured 11 millimeters wide, all right? And so what was interesting is that if you compare the outcomes in our paper and the other paper, they got their measured increase in width was 50% of what ours was. So you they can went see from why. 4 to 8, whereas we went from 4 to 12 millimeters, if you want to put numbers on it. Okay, so they had half of the increase in width, and that resulted in double the complications in those patients. Yeah, so the, the, the take-home message that people got from that article was, oh, if you have a narrow plate, you better not do that. But that was the wrong message. The message was, if you don't make a deep tip incision, it's not going to work, or it may not work. And, and this is an extreme example of when it's not going to work. You know, you're not going to get enough width, enough caliber of the urethra Um, in that circumstance if you make an incision like the other authors did down below. Or don't make an incision at at all, all. and then you have even less of that laxicity that we were talking about. Did anybody answer a Matu repair? No. Good. Yeah, so we wouldn't do a Matu repair either. And just to emphasize, there's been some recent publicity about SLAM operations, except that that's just a V incision on the glands, and, and the only published data that we can find looking at that says that it worked in less than half the patients that they were trying to get that incision with. To so give a slit like me is instead of that weird round thing. Okay. So we, we did a tip on this patient and just make the point that you don't have to go through these worries examining the anatomy of these boys with distal hypospadias. If they have a straight penis then you can do a tip repair on them. That's it. You don't have to measure the you don't have to measure anything. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to ask yourself, was well, it going to have a raw area or any of that? You don't have to do any of that. We do a tip on all of them. And so here's a picture of lots of different distal hypospadiases and look at all the different anatomy. When I was in training, we stood at the operating table for the first 15 minutes of the operation, looking at the anatomy and trying to categorize this sort of thing. I mean, that's what 
people did, okay, and, and it was like, well, is this a meatal variant? Is this a fish mouth meatus? Is this a rigid this or that? Can we do a magpie? Do we do a flip-flap? Do we do an onlay? And, and so if you want to live that life, then that's how you do it. But, but you don't have to do that. And, and this course, many years back, would have been this. slide after that's slide right. after slide of a different patient trying to poll the audience, which one do you do, with the assumption that you are only going to get a good outcome if you as the surgeon magically picked the right operation for that patient's anatomy. And we're here to say it's so much more important to technically do the operation correctly as opposed to worrying about the details of the anatomy, except for curvature. Yeah, that, that's really the bottom line is that in the past, and again, go back and read it, Duckett thought that the complications happened because you chose the wrong operation for that child's anatomy. And what we say is that no, Complications happen because you made a mistake in the performance of the operation, like the picture we just showed where the surgeons did not make an adequate incision to get the increase in caliber to avoid complications. And, and that's really important because what that means is that everyone doing hypospadias needs to know their own personal complication rate and make sure that it's low because if it's higher than five to 10%, then you are making technical errors, so that's bad. But the good thing is that you can correct the errors and get better results, which is why we do this course, okay? And then, uh-huh. Well, we use different catheters for you know, I mean, we use a five or a six. I'm going to answer that differently and say okay. we can't answer that because okay. we only have ever used a five or a six French catheter. We use five Frenches for the, the kids with 13 millimeter glands or less, you know, and then six for the rest. People use eights. They use tens. But it would be don't. my thought that the bigger the catheter, the more, I mean, most of your complications with the fistular gland stasis happen because of tension. You get tension when you don't incise deeply enough and you try to close things together and it's tight. I would think that using a bigger catheter would be the same sort of process. It could be tighter, you know, with post-op edema or things along those lines. So lots of people do it, but I have not seen that question answered in a way that I would like to see it answered. So the, the catheter that we put in our minds is not there to make the size of the urethra. The urethra is as big as you can possibly make it in sizing that urethral plate deeply. So you're not using it as a mold for the size of your urethra. It's only there to divert the urine while kids are healing. That's it. No, and that goes back to the whole idea that people worry that for, for many different reasons, people worry that they're going to get scarring. And the fact is, if you make a deep incision and use a five or six French stent, which is what we do, our incidence of stricture or stenosis is less than 1%. And if you look at meta-analysis of distal tip repair, the incidence of stricture is 1% and the incidence of meatal stenosis is 3%. So the vast majority of patients don't develop that. It's not an inherent healing thing that they're going to heal with a blockage, which means you don't have to worry about molding it with your catheter.
But if you want to use a bigger catheter, to me, you just have to prove you're not getting more glands dehiscence, for yeah, instance. Yeah, but, but you just don't it. even try it, because <laughs> you don't need I mean, because if you, if you want to prove it, then you've got to start doing every patient consecutively with like an eight French catheter. And if that's too big for some patients, you're going to create a, a glands dehiscence that you might have avoided. And that, that's why we just don't do it. Real quick while we're on it, I know there's been a lot of questions. We've always used the Kendall catheter, also called the Dover catheter. That's that six French one, and now they don't make it or sell it anymore. So um, we just have gone to a very simple, inexpensive, um, either five French or six French feeding tube, and that has worked quite well for us. We tried some softer silicone stents, and folks were having problems with those getting blocked or, um, or not draining well. So just the old-fashioned cheap feeding tubes have worked well. I would not recommend using a six French Foley catheter with the balloon because that, that exit channel is gonna be less than three French and those can get blocked very easily. So. so some of you may be using an eight French stent or something. We're not saying that's a mistake. We're just saying that we've not used that size and if you are, just or whatever you're using, you should know your own results, okay? And then as far as grafting it, a number of you said you would graft it. Okay, fine. I mean, the thing that is good about, the, the good thing about that is that some people are hesitant to make the deep incision and worried that it's going to scar something. And so if you cannot shake that mindset, and some people just can't, but they're gonna graft it, well then they're still making the deep incision and they feel comfortable that it's gonna heal okay because they put the graft in. So we don't have an objection to it, we just never do it. There's not been a paper that shows a benefit to it, but there's also not been a paper, and many have been written that, that show there's it's really it's no worse. poor outcome with it. So that one is a flip of the coin. For us, it just takes longer, so we don't. We don't do it. Okay? Now, yes. um, There is. There's oh, yeah. a five French. And there's a three can... French, but yeah, we don't use that for. Yeah, there's a five French too. Yes, you can. E we'll have our emails at the end. You can email me, and I'll show you our vendor number for it. Real quick, we have new folks who have come in. So if you text the number two two three three three, um, y'all can um, participate in the questions if you wish. Well, you, they text it, but they have to put in that. Right. Right. So text two two three 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 and then, and then you you're enter. And then you type K, the K Johnson, the letter K, and then J O H N S O N zero eight zero, and, and then it'll you get you in. Okay. All right. So here's the next one. This patient had a distal repair, and then the catheter was removed at the planned time. And very soon after that, the parents called and said he's got a fistula. Okay, so everybody's seen that. And what do we do? Okay, you see the fish, the arrow's pointing. It's small fistula there. Okay, so we're going to go to the next the slide. So we can all put in our Now results. you can put in your answers. You're going to wait for six months and then do a fistula closure. You're going to do some meatal dilations to try to get it to close. You're going to put a catheter in or you're gonna apply dermabond to the wound. As we're doing this, if somebody has a, a totally different answer than we've put up there that you wanna mention, feel free, but these are the choices that we give you. 
presume most of you have answered that. Yep. Okay, so most of you are going to wait for six months and just fix what's left at that time. Some of you are going to start meatal dilation. Some of you are going to put a catheter in. Nobody chose the dermabond um, answer, so let's see. And this was a fun one because our no. results might have changed <laughs> preparing for this course. So this is the traditional thing, of course, that, you know, you just let it all heal and then, and at least for six months, and then you go in and close the fistula. And, and that's perfectly reasonable um, thing to do. And it's fun if you go back and read the very early articles on hyperspace repair, that they would do four or five operations in a six-month period of time. And you're like, wow, that's, I mean, just amazing to think about. And, of course, all of us have been trained that you don't operate again in short times because tissues need time to heal but that's where the six months come from this now we wouldn't do this the the, the thing here is that there's not meatal stenosis and dilations don't help meatal stenosis so what you're really talking about is maybe there's some edema there and maybe doing some dilations would take some pressure off um, but if if this is the way you're thinking i i think it would be better to put a catheter in than it is to do repeated dilations. We really have some families that have been terribly traumatized by having, having to, to dilate, dilate their, their children and feeling like they were somehow responsible for a bad outcome, you know, because of that in some way, so. So everybody has done this at some point, put in a catheter and you know, for whatever reason, to see if the fissure would close. And, and just anecdotally, I, I've not had much success with that. But, you know, I mean, part of the course is for us to learn, too. And so I went back and, and read what I could find. And sure enough, a little bitty series that said they put in catheter for two more weeks and that, you know, six out of nine reportedly closed up and didn't recur. So it makes me think may, maybe there's a place in a case like this early fistula, small size fistula, early after surgery, I don't know, maybe, maybe there would be, and especially if you're inclined to dilate, maybe instead of doing that, we would be better to, to try putting a catheter. So one thing is, we're, we're never going to learn anything if we don't think about things like this, and maybe, you know, do a consecutive series of those patients and see if any of them close or not. Certainly, families would be happy to Put a catheter back in as opposed to having another operation at another date. And this was also interesting. Um, I've never done the dermabond to the fistula thing, and yet here was a, a study that for this exact kind of patient, they found that it was successful. Huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what we would do. In fact, I think you did that the other day. Yep. So, yeah, for sure. Quick question. Oh, so if we're going to do something like this, we're going to give them an anesthetic and, and, and put back in, a, you know, a stent and put a stitch in and just, just like before and do the dermabond like that. I mean, that's what we're going to do. But we don't e really ever catheterize somebody post-op of a hypospatial repair awake. We, we don't. I mean... You could, and, and we have, of course, back at the university setting and things along those but, lines. But so it's, it's feasible, but you're right. It's very difficult then because you're not going to put that stasis, no. and then you're throwing a tegaderm on, and you hope and keep your fingers crossed 
So it's we've just, especially with with these new data, really thinking about putting some dermabond on it and trying to give it every best chance. It, it sure would be nice to have that patient nice and still for you to be able to do that. And I think there's not going to be a lot of families that, that really that. don't want to do a very quick five or seven minute procedure at the hope of avoiding something six months down the road. And if this data is true that two thirds of them could, I think that's probably going to be something that's well worth it. At least we're going to be doing it on a series of patients and find out. Okay, here's another one. So there's the patient. He's been out three years, not having any problems, except his parents, he's toilet trained now, and you've heard this. The parents say he's got a real forceful, tiny little stream. So what would you recommend when, when that patient and mom tells you that story? So we'll go to the slide that has your choices. You can start some home dilations, calibrate that in the office, do a dorsal meatotomy, do a ventral meatotomy. I think our questions are getting harder. You think? You think that's a hard question? A few of you are hesitating to answer. <laughs> The great thing, it's all anonymous, right? So. Okay. All right, let's see what the results are. Okay. There you go. There's our, so we're all over the board on this one. Mm -hmm. So let's talk through them. Well, first off, you know, di dilations, they, they, they don't, cure a problem. Remember, this is three years out. So if he has meatal stenosis, the question is, does, does meatal stenosis get cured by dilations, you know, if it is presenting several years after surgery? And as she said, you know, this is really very upsetting to parents to do this. Because this kid now, he's, he's not going to just lay there and take that. And so, but you told them to do it and they're going to hold that kid down and do it. But so the answer in this question is the office calibration and this shows why, okay? That's an eight French sound, which is the normal size. I mean, you know, the eight or 10 French size is normal in a child and it went in fine. So there's not an anatomic obstruction in the patient. That, that's the question the parents are asking you with that small, fine stream. So you look at the opening and your eye says, hmm, looks a little small, maybe there's a problem there. So the next step is to just take out, I mean, we have those little sounds in our office and you dab a little goop on it and it goes in this far and, and you know you got, it takes a second to do. And, and then you've provided reassurance yeah, to the that family. Yeah, there's not an anatomic But you blockage. have to tell them why you started that's to, right, do that, that I did to do that, actually, because that's really an important part of this story, I think. So here's a patient that has no, a... you didn't tell them. I think you what? should. Oh, what, my you story? you got to tell them your story from Lubbock. Okay. It, it, it's important to hear, I think. So I, I, in my office in Lubbock years ago, <laughs> there was a pediatrician downstairs from me, and in his his thing 
at his four-year-old checkup of his male patients was to look at their meatus. I, I don't know why. And, and so in any of them that looked small, like the patient we showed, he would send those up to my office. I mean, these were just going in for well child checks. It was just Kids his four-year-old. Kids getting their vaccines. Or whatever. The, they were four. He was looking at, at the meatus and, and decided if it small or not. So then, you know, I'm new in practice and all, and I'm thinking, what, what do I do? I, I just send them back down and say, no, you're fine. Or, you know, I'm thinking I, I need to do, I, I need to have a reason to say nothing needs to be Because now the mom's all worried. Yeah. They had to make a specialist appointment, appointment and spend all this money because the opening looks small. I mean, you can imagine how all that would happen, right? So I had those little straight sounds. And uh, so I thought, oh, I'll just test it. So I, I did that. Put a little dab of grease on it. Just poop, stick it in. It takes a nanosecond to do. The kids, if they start crying, it's after it's all done, you know. And then they quit. Um, and, and I saw that small-looking meatus didn't mean anything because the eight, I never found a single one that the eight French sound wouldn't easily go into. But having said that, we see patients, again, half of our business is patients that come from other pediatric urologists, and we see their notes, and many people take folks back to the operating room to do a meatotomy on, on this exact story. That's where this comes from. The, the family stream. said there's a fine stream. No symptoms, no infections. Nothing. Nothing else. Fine stream. Fine stream. And they go in, in the operating room, don't record doing a calibration or anything. They go straight into a meatotomy. So that, that's why we're bringing it up, is to say, you know, let's think through this, what's going on. And so this patient has true meatal stenosis. I think you can see that. And so you're not going to be able to stick an eight French sound into that. And in addition, these patients, the symptom isn't usually just a small stream. I and mean, most of these people are straining. In fact, the true meatal stenosis that we see, by the time they come to see us, most of them are straining so hard that they're pooping while they're, you know, trying to pee and all. So there's not much question or they're having urinary infection. So it's symptoms plus anatomic blockage. That's meatal stenosis. But what about that fine stream? What happens with that? So this is great data. So this is, comes from Canada, and they did, as you see, these types of repairs for dystopic space, and then they followed these patients with periodic flow rates for over 10 years. And, and you see what happens, that over time, the, the streams change in a favorable way, particularly as boys get up to puberty and the caliber increases. So this has been seen in other studies too. But the point is, that the TIP, the MATU, the MACPA, all of them have the same, there's no statistical difference in this series in the positive change that occurred in the streams. So again, sometimes people want to say, yeah, but the TIP, it makes a narrow thing and, you know, and, and a fine stream and that's a problem. It, there you go, right there. You do nothing. They're not having symptoms. It's just an observation. You calibrate it. It's not anatomically obstructed. You can reassure the family this gets better over time. And, of course, if you take non-operated hypospadias kids and do flow rates on them, you the find same thing almost happens. exactly the same pattern with them. They so. improve with time. So if, if you do have a case where you're going to do a meatotomy, like the other one that I showed a second ago, so this is just a point to think about too. Oftentimes we see people that have done a 
ventral meatotomy, okay? So we'll just suggest you think about doing a dorsal meatotomy. That's kind of like another tip incision. So this is what we do is make a, a little incision dorsally through the scar, and then we inject uh, Kenalog to try to keep it from recurring. We don't have enough, we don't see this very often, we don't have enough data to report, but, but the last time I looked through the patients we've done, this has worked in, in, in about 50% of them. So if we avoid another big operation, it's great, but the families all know mm, this is kind of a, you know, yeah. these are usually your redo, redo, redo sort of patients who have had a lot of stuff that, that's done. That's where we typically see it in. But it's a very minor thing to do a dorsal meatotomy, and we always inject with Kenalog. There's a problem with scarring, with wound healing, and that's something that may help improve that. How are you doing this? You can, you can pick up with, you know, your .5s and just see kind of straight down there, even in that patient. Mm -hmm. So you're not touching the dentures? No. The only reason, we've occasionally seen a patient that maybe has been done elsewhere where they've, where, you know, the glands fusion should be between four and five millimeters. And every once in a while we'll have a kid from elsewhere where they probably cut way too far, too, too distal on the glands, and then they did a glands fusion of like eight millimeters, so double the usual. So it's it's up way at the tip. That patient you could do ventral because then you're cutting to a normal amount of glands fusion. You could cut from eight down to four and be okay in that scenario. Yeah, so it depends on the anatomy, but most of the time, these are normal glands fusion distances and it's tightening up on that, on that dorsal surface. Yeah, because this is the whole point. That's why we put this case in because many, many people, when they do a meatotomy cut ventrally and, and you're at risk for recreating the hypospadias that you were there to fix in the first place. And so we, 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 we'd never do that, actually. So, so I we mean, wanted except to put for that a picture case. in, and we, <laughs> yeah, we don't have not, a picture. We couldn't find anything that <laughs> so worked So that's why it that. says that. <laughs> so again, something to think about. If you have a patient that meets these criteria for meatal stenosis and you want to treat them, we treat that patient dorsally, inject Kenalog, and as I say, we, we, have, we think about a 50% success rate with that. We don't stitch it. Um, the thing, remember this, that there is no data on this. You know, go home and Google, you know, meatal stenosis outcomes after hypospatial repair, and, and there isn't any. Nothing has been published on that. So whatever you're doing with that, you're doing for whatever reason you are. And so we're just trying to call these points to attention. But, you know, we're, we're keeping our data, but we don't see many boys that have isolated meatal stenosis where everything else is okay, so. Okay, so those were the easy cases. Do we want to stop right there? Any more details about distal hypospadias, questions that y'all have about the most common complications that we see? We're moving pretty good, so we've got time to talk about it. Well, we haven't got to these patients yet. Okay, so let's look at this patient. What diagnosis goes with that? need to go to the next slide so I know. can answer. So is this CAH, a, a girl with CAH? Is this 
a patient that has ambiguous genitalia and a micropenis, an ex, huh? Well, you, you have to go buy the picture there. That's what you get. Is this an undervirilized male or just plain old hypospadias? That's the question. I'm going to go back to the picture real quick and show it one more time. Okay. Now go back forward so that I can answer. Some of you are hesitant or you're tired of playing the game. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so your comment, of course, well, there, there's the answers, okay? So, that, I mean, your question is right, of course, that if you want to know if it's CAH, you don't need to call the endocrinologist. You need to feel if there's a testicle, okay? And so, of course, by the time we get called, usually the endocrinologist has been called because the neonatologists don't know that. So this would be a good lesson for all of us to share with the neonatologist that before you go calling endocrine and doing all this stuff, getting a genetic workup and all that, just feel if there's a testicle. So in this patient there is, you can feel it. Both of them are descended, but especially there, you can see and you can feel that testicle. So it's not a girl. So we don't have to worry about that. So that, that's a really, I mean, you know, this seems so simple, doesn't it? But Wow, we've had some discussions in several forums where we've suggested that to people. If that you feel a testicle, testicle it's a boy. It's a boy. And, and we've not found anything in the literature that can prove otherwise in that regard. And yet I've had several people come up to me and say, you can't take a complicated subject like that and make it so simple. But I think you can. If there's a testicle, it's not a girl. So what about this? Is this ambiguous genitalia and a micropenis? So I'm sure, I'm sure that everyone in this room has probably used these terms in, in a patient like this. And so the question is, if you Google what's ambiguous genitalia, and you should do this, if, so if you walk in the room to see a patient and you use those words, you tell mom your child has ambiguous genitalia, and then as soon as you get out the door, mom's got her on the phone and she's Googling what's ambiguous genitalia. And if you do that, it doesn't give you a definition for ambiguous genitalia. Instead, it takes you straight to DSD. And so now mom thinks that she's like, is this a boy or a girl? What, what's going on? Does my kid have these other problems, et cetera, et cetera? So that, that's the message they get. And the same thing, if you say the term micropenis, I mean, you don't have to be a doctor to know that sounds like a bad thing to have. And so now the parents are distraught. First, they never heard of hypospadias. And now the next thing, in comes the doctors and says, well, your child has ambiguous genitalia and maybe a micropenis and we need to work that up. You know, it's all very medical and clean cut for us and just absolutely distressing, terrifying to the parents. And so again, if ambiguous means 
could be a boy or a girl. That's what it should be. If you use that term, it shouldn't be. Kind of looks weird. It should be, I don't know if this is a boy or a girl. That means there's no palpable testicles, right? So if you can feel a testicle, then it's not ambiguous genitalia. No matter what it looks like, it's not ambiguous. It's a boy. And, and if, if you, you can't, well, the fastest thing is, of course, to get an ultrasound. ultrasound, look, look for, for a vagina, uterus. Look for, yeah. Yeah. So really, I mean, this is something to really think about. All of you encounter this, and the, if you, in our practice, since we don't do anything else, we have plenty of time to hear the stories from these parents, and they're horrifying what they've been put through in major institutions by well-intending doctors who have who've used these sorts of terms when, when they're not applicable. Both the testicles will be normally descended and they'll still have heard all of these terms. So, and almost no boys. If you're using the term micropenis in hypospadias, you're pairing severe hypospadias, almost not a single patient has that. Look at this patient down at the bottom. This patient at the bottom is more severe than the patient that we're showing in the example, okay? And I mean, really, you look at that and that really does look quite the female, doesn't it? And yet, before, before we corrected the patient, you see the, sh the length there that we're measuring. That's the stretch penile length that's at two centimeters. Does this penis look like this? Yeah, and, and that's the, the normal newborn stretch penile length. And then if you look over here, this is after we straightened the curvature at the first operation, and his penis measures just under four centimeters. So that's not a micropenis. It's not a micropenis. And almost no, I mean, we measure, we measure stretch penile lengths on everybody we operate on, all in our database. And we have almost zero patients with the most severe hypospadias that have a micropenis. It, it's not what happens to them, so we need to quit saying that. Right. Well, the, the actual official definition is stretch penile length less than two standard deviations from the mean, right? Now, what about a smaller glands? What about an overall thinner penis versus a thicker penis? I'm not aware of that being objectively, you know, as a criteria. And There's and the, an old study that shows less than nine millimeters in a newborn for the glands width, but that was extrapolating from the diameter that they did with rings, and of course they had foreskin in that area, so I think it's a little tricky, but you, you'll find a few with nine millimeter glands, but really not that many. Most of them are gonna be 12 to 13. And, and even then, their stretch penile length is normal. We all see adult, well, you, you guys don't, but you know, you see adult men. Most adult men, as you know, the, 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 the glands extends out past the corpora, right? In most cases, the glands is wider at the corona than the corpora are. But in some men, it's pretty even, and in some normal men, it's actually the other way, right? The, the glands is less wide than the width of the corpora. So you have a range of normal, and I think that's why stretch penile length is more the definition, because there's too much variation in widths. So again, you know, the definition of a, of a micropenis is not met 
by boys with hypospadias, even the most severe hypospadias. So we would encourage you not to say that. In fact, you know, a true patient born that has enough of a phallic structure to make you wonder what it is and there's no palpable gonads, I mean, th those are unusual circumstances. And so we have to be careful not to just knee jerk and say, oh, this child with funny looking genitalia has ambiguous genitalia and maybe a micropenis. So that's why we're saying this. We cannot tell you how many parents, in fact, many of the parents who come to us with severe hypospadias found this because we have a, a thing on the internet about this subject and they found that and were so relieved by that clarity of an explanation as opposed to what they were hearing from the neonatologists and endocrinologists and all that they were like, we're coming to see you. So it, and, and it doesn't mean they don't have DSD. Of course, they, you, know, you can have your karyotypes that are abnormal where they can have a mixed gonadal dysgenesis most commonly. So there are going to be the occasional children who need an additional evaluation, but that's all you have to say. We're going to do some additional tests. And most of the time, even in the most severe hypospadias patients, it's all going to be normal. I mean, if you really look at your data and look at the most severe hypospadias patients, their karyotypes are typically normal. A few may not be, and those can be identified with that. But if you look at the hormonal studies and all of the gazillion testosterone levels and things along those lines, Gene arrays, you just don't typically see anything that's out of the ordinary. So these kids have gone through, and their families have gone through a tremendous amount of stress, thousands of dollars worth of testing, and most of the time it's fine. So what about this? You, I don't know how many urologists make this diagnosis, but they're involved in the care of patients where this diagnosis. So the, the only time we've seen this is in people who are being cared for by DSD teams. And, and not, not speaking one way or the other, whether that's good or bad, just saying this diagnosis of 46XY under virilized male. So if you're working in a team where that diagnosis is sometimes made, then I'll just pose a question because I've, I've researched this, I've talked to endocrinologists and everything, and I've said, so what does that mean? What is the objective criteria that say you have that? Because what if you look up under virilized, it, it, it says under masculinized, I think. I mean, it's like, okay, well, that, that's not a definition. And so when you this is that patient that we've been talking about at the top, and this is him at his final operation, okay? After his penis has been straightened and the scrotal transposition has been corrected and all of that's been done, would anybody look at that and say, that's a micropenis, that's an undervirulized person, a male, and, and the answer is no. And the other thing is, because we see teens and adults with hypospadias, we see almost none, almost none, who are on any kind of testosterone. So that when you when endocrinologists tell patients that they're under virilized, they tell the family under virilized, and some of them will say, and we're not sure if your child is going to be able to go through puberty on his own or not. And and when I've been involved in that, I've cornered them and say, I want to see the data you have that says that a patient with this diagnosis is going to have problems at puberty. Because we we never see have any of y'all seen a teenager who who 
had to have testosterone supplementation to go through puberty related to hypospadias. There's a wonderful study that's going to be coming out of one of the um, European countries where they can follow families with the same, you know, person number forever that shows not a single person with even the most severe forms of hypospadias needed help to go through puberty. So what's under virilized? Anyway, just again, that's the reason we do this is to bring up these subjects and think about it. So this patient had a scrotal hypospadias, and we can fix that. Okay, here's, we're going to go back on to this. So now, though, okay, we've made the diagnosis. What's next? We're going to treat him with testosterone or with injections or testosterone cream or dihydrotestosterone or, or no testosterone at all. Those are your choices. So there they are. You're going to give, and, and that's just the regimen, you know, the top one. That's just the regimen that is in the textbooks and all. So if you're going to use any kind of injection, answer that. The second one, the same thing. If you use topical testosterone cream, maybe in a different regimen, answer that one. If you have access to dihydrotestosterone, use that. We'd like to talk to you afterwards. And then D, you don't do it. So most of you aren't going to do anything, a third and two-thirds. All right, so let's look at that. So we reported this. We, we went through a spell where we used testosterone based on glands width uh, back in the uh, late 2000s. And, um, and what we found, one of the things that we found, because we, we measured the glands width, and if it was 13 or less, we treated them with testosterone. And we did it on, we started with that regimen, two milligrams per kilogram. And then we remeasured the glands six weeks or four to six weeks four later. And, 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 and so we had objective data on each patient to see that two-thirds of the patients with proximal hypospadias, who are the ones that most people who give testosterone give it to, um, they didn't respond to that dose. They didn't respond to the two milligrams. So if you do two milligrams per kilogram, and, and you do that as your standard routine for proximal hypospadias, odds are you're not giving enough to make an anatomic difference, in, at least in a sizable number of them. As I say, we measured the glands on every one of them repetitively. And it's really interesting that was difference. different than in the distal patients Where because we did responded. the same protocol, like 13 millimeters or less. They got a dose of it. Most of those would respond and already after a single injection be above 14 millimeters. So yeah, so we found they only needed the, the distal. Again, dose. this was a protocol, one dose, and they were done. They didn't need two doses. With the proximals, we started out with the two dose. I mean, we did, we did two. Th three times, and when yeah. we saw several patients that didn't grow during that time, that we changed the protocol. Yeah, so then we started escalating the dose, and that's when we finally saw response. So if you believe in testosterone and you believe that you're giving it to grow the penis, you might want to measure the size of the glands. The measuring the glands is the easiest thing to measure, and so you might want to do that, and, and you'll probably find, as we did, that that dose doesn't do it. And we don't have any experience with giving testosterone uh, by, in a cream 
form, I mean, y'all are familiar with the arguments, whether it, you know, it's um, reliable or not, et cetera. But as I say, here's a recent study looking at it that's, that was looking at it based on glands width and, and found that, um, that they did get reliable increase in size using that regimen. So that, that was following the same protocol that we did in the past. But if you read the next sentence in that same article, yeah, they got the penis bigger, but they didn't change the complications. They had the same complication rate. So that's our point right there, and that's what happened with us. We gave testosterone not to make the penis bigger, but to decrease the complications, and we did not achieve that. And so we quit giving testosterone. That's why we don't give it. This is interesting about dihydrotestosterone. We have a couple of patients who have 5-alpha reductase deficiency with hypospadias, and we have really struggled, but we've managed recently and to- And those kids are a true micropenis. Yeah, They're yeah like that's different. six millimeter yeah. glands or less. They're a little- And we were able to get Andractum, which is topical dihydrotestosterone. We got it through a pharmacy in Israel and um, are treating a couple of patients now. And wow, I mean, within a couple of weeks, they have a penis. It's really dramatic. But, but the question comes about, what about other patients? Because the difference in this is that it's anabolic steroid. You explain. Yeah, there's, there are several an animal studies that look at testosterone. And there are lots of hormones, of course, you know, male hormones that, that can be given. Some are anabolic, some are catabolic, and all of these can have impacts on how wounds heal. Their collagen, the inflammation, so testosterone can impair um, wound healing because it can increase some inflammation. I think that we just have to really carefully think about that. There's not a lot of studies because dihydrotestosterone is not easily available, but what's there looks like it probably has less impact on wound healing. And so if we were gonna use anything for growth, I think this would be a smarter choice. There's also alendronon, which is another hormone that um, is in that cascade, which people are using in, in pediatric burn patients that seems to have some improvement in wound healing. So we have to kind of think of the big picture of not just what we're doing from penis size standpoint, but also what we're doing that impacts inflammation, collagen deposition, all of that kind of stuff. And just wound healing. Wound healing in general. And testosterone in general kind of seems bad for that whereas dihydrotestosterone maybe, maybe wouldn't have that same impact. So, so we've sent in, a, we're actually in communication with the FDA right now, and, and we're working on getting started with them approving dihydrotestosterone, especially for 5-alpha reductase patients. We're, we're doing that first, and if we can get them to approve that, then we'll And we'll see how these 5-alpha reductase patients heal and how yeah. that works and how durable is it. I mean, there's so many questions that could be answered, um, but there are some studies that are done in a couple other countries with DHT. Did you reference those anywhere? I don't know. Um, no. And one of them shows that there might be some slight improvement in distal hypospadias patients. That's not typically who you'd want to be using DHT cream in, I don't think, but that is what it is. So that's what's out there. 
Yeah, so th this is our point. As I say, we did a study. So those of you who've been to this course before, we told the story before that our number one complication in the proximal repairs was glands dehiscence. And, and we, that's what got us measuring glands width to document that, yep, you know, boys with proximal hypospadias, their median glands width is less than the median glands width of boys with distal hypospadias and normal boys. And so I thought, man, that's an easy fix. We'll give them testosterone, grow their glands to the same size as distals and normal boys, and then glands dehiscence will go away. And, and so that's when we found out, well, you gotta give more testosterone than you thought you were gonna give to get there. And so we, we saw that there was relative androgen uh, resistance in boys with more severe hypospadias. So we gave them higher doses, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line was we had boys who already had a glands of target size with proximal hypospadias. We had boys that had a smaller glands than target size with proximal hypospadias. But when we operated on them, they all had the same size glands. And the ones who needed testosterone to have that size had 30% more complications than the boys who didn't. So again, when you hear all this noise about testosterone and all of that, or in your own thinking, the question is, do you, need, do you need to make the penis bigger to do surgery? Isn't that what loops are for? And so the real question is, if you do this, are you decreasing complications? And, and nobody has really shown that, and proximal hypospadias. Not in proximal, yeah, and that one that showed it in distals, not a great study by any means, and it was with DHT, not with testosterone. And there's reason to think that may behave totally differently. Okay, so we're back to another one with curvature. So this is a proximal hypospadias. I mean, a proximal meatus associated in this case. So that's the goniometer. Yesterday, those of you who were there at the end of the day, and there was a slide that showed a goniometer, and that was that great big old that's long the thing. the arm or the knee one. Oh, you can't God. really use that on I, you know, most penises, seriously. but I know. This is, the, this is what a goniometer that you would use to measure a penis looks like the finger goniometer, and even yeah. the finger goniometer is too long. You have to have your instrument sharpening guy cut the bottom of it. Y'all can email me. I have a little protocol well, it's that on, you um, can use. It's on YouTube also. And it's on YouTube if you want to cut it yourself. Okay. So in any event, we are, as you know, we are big believers in objectively measuring the curvature because your eyes are not goniometers. So... These are your choices. So he's got 75 degrees of curvature, and the question is, what do you do to correct this kind of curvature? So we'll go to the next one so you can answer. What happened? Uh-oh, they didn't put it to the polling one again. What? They didn't do the questions oh. with it. Hmm. Yeah, so they can't. We don't know. Somehow that one didn't, didn't work. I don't know how that happened because earlier today I checked all of them. They all had the questions there. Well, so in any event, so you can think to yourself, we'll go through them, what what you would do. I'm we sorry. We kind of did this earlier. Anyhow, yeah, we did. So. This is a, but that was on a boy that had a distal meatus. So again, just making the point that cordy excision doesn't straighten a penis. And yet we still, that was the second most common thing. And we had an unselected series of boys with, failed surgery from proximal hypospadias who chose to come to us for second opinions 
and 85% of those boys who came to us because of recurrent fistulas or glands dehiscence or a stricture, meatal stenosis, the, the usual things that you see, 85% of them had ventral curvature 30 degrees or more. And, and not all of those were known. I mean, we didn't even see it in some of them, but we checked an artificial erection on every single one of them. 85% had that curvature. And then when we looked back to see, well, the original surgeon, how did they straighten the penis? Because 80% of boys with a proximal meatus have curvature that's 30 degrees or more. And so how did they correct it? And the number one answer was dorsal plication. The number two answer, it shocked me, was cordy excision, was cordy excision. We and would read, it would be glistening because yeah. they would cut all of yeah. the cordia away. So again, if, if this is what you've been thinking, we found, as we showed earlier, that most of those boys, when you do cordy excision, it doesn't straighten the penis. And, uh, and if you do an artificial erection, you see that. We found, again, that most of these boys who had cordy excision, this was the worst outcome of the different ways people corrected it. Almost all of them still had curvature. You see it was an average of 40 degrees after cordy excision. So this, again, we just make the point, um, you know, we just don't have to use the word cordy. We can say curvature. And then we can tell families, well, your kid has, you know, look at the penis. It's got short skin, so maybe it's all going to get straight when we deglove. Or we're going to deglove and it's going to be bent. And almost always the cause of that is the corpora being short, and, and you can say it's the underside is shorter than the other side. Parents get that immediately, but more importantly, then we get that too. And when we keep talking about Cordy and stuff, then at least a sizable number of us are still thinking in terms of a, of a theory that's been disproved when artificial erection came out. Oh, now it appears. Okay, so now you can answer the question. That's answer. so weird. Well, they can. We've only said so. so maybe you're not going to answer A. But if you would have, just go ahead and do it because nobody knows. If A was would have been your answer, just go ahead and enter that if you would. That's so weird. We made a technical error. Maybe I guess I, I maybe I didn't catch it when I was going through the slides. There you go. Yay, you passed. <laughs> what was the question to see? <laughs> yeah, so we've already talked about dorsal applications, and, and obviously the more severe the curvature like this is worse than the one that we showed earlier, and, and it, this is just not going to be a, a reliable straightening. And she made the comment earlier, you can look at the reference down there from, from CHOP, so this all came mostly from impetus from John Beckett, not picking on him. I mean, if you go back historically, everybody, everybody did cordy excision for straightening the penis. Everybody did. And there was no way to really tell. So one reason that people originally staged proximal or staged hypospadias repairs was because they couldn't be sure before artificial erection whether the penis was straight. And in fact, you can read articles that said that they chose to stage the repair so that they could find out after surgery when the patient had erections whether the penis was straight or not, okay? 
So people were doing cordy excision, and, and if you have a penis that's bent and you cut off all that tissue under there, well, the penis will lay more straight, and it feels like it penis may be straight. And so that's why you have to do an artificial erection. So John Duckett lived through that era, was taught to do cordy excision, which is removing the urethral plate and everything, and then he started doing artificial erections and seeing that the penis was bent. So again, that's where the term corporal disproportion came, came off, from, which is what we're saying. It's shorter torsally than it is ventrally. It's disproportionate. The other way, but okay. And so, so again, you can shorten the longer side or lengthen the shorter side. And, and Reed Nesbitt faced that dilemma in a boy that had lateral curvature. So he went in expecting to see cordy tissue on the side of the penis because everybody knew that curvature was due to cordy tissue and he degloved the penis and he couldn't find any cordy tissue but the patient had bending, you know, that was like 90 degrees to the left. And so he faced that, you can read the article, that's exactly what he said. He could lengthen one side, shorten the other side and he, he chose to shorten the longer side as being the most expedient thing to do. And so he put in... He did a Baskin-type procedure. He just stitched it, and he said after surgery, the, the penis was straight for a period of a few months, and then it recurred the curvature exactly the way it had been before. And so he went back and did it with the, the incisions that we think of with Nesbitt, Nesbitt. Yeah, he took out all those ellipses and sewed them up, and then, and then that time it stayed durable is what he said. And interestingly, then John Duckett came along, repeated that experiment, saw that cordy excision didn't make the penis straight, went through the same thing of do I do the plication or not, and then modified Nesbitt's taking out an ellipse to instead just making parallel cuts and sewing and ducking in the intervening tissue. That was a tap procedure. And then Baskin came along and said, well, we don't even have to make that cut. We can just put the stitch in to do that. Probably many of you do that procedure. There's actually data, at least one study, two studies, that show that if you don't cut the corpora and you just put a stitch in, that you have a higher failure rate. So we quit doing Baskin procedures because of that. But that's the background to all of this, yes. Were you, I'm sorry, were you gonna make a comment? But if you look down there, that whole story got started out by that statement right there. So the guys in Philadelphia, I'm sure, have inherited a lot of patients that had dorsal placations done by John Duckett, and now they're having to deal with teenagers and adults with bent penises. And so now they say they don't do placations if they got more than 15 degrees of curvature. So some people still do single, in fact, I think most people still do a ventral corporotomy. And the problem is that, you know, you can't, you, you can't get enough of a cut in many of them to get the penis straight. And so, you know, the latest thing, that's Earl Chang saying that he cuts it from neurovascular bundle to neurovascular bundle. But even that may not be enough. And then when you put a graft in, any, any graft can shrink. Every graft series everywhere that's done legitimate measurements has shown at least a 7% graft contracture rate. So 
if you've got zero margin for error on a very bent penis that you only do a single corporotomy and that graft shrinks some, you're going to have a penis that's rebent. So I admit I'm surprised in a pleasant way that everybody answered they would do three corporotomies. Because it's the best. I mean, it really is. From, from just looking at the numbers, the numbers speak for themselves. Okay, this is the last question that we have. So how would you fix this patient? Those are your choices. Go to the next one where, the, where you can answer it. Tip, onlay or transverse island, virus flap or stack. We didn't say it or show it on there, but the, 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 it's over 30 degrees of curvature. It may be good to go back to the picture real quick, because I think most people have answered. Can you go back? I'm trying. So if you just take a brief look at that dorsal skin. They can't see it oh, if I'm you sorry. point down there. You can point out here. Yeah, sorry. Right there. up there, there's some weird, weird dorsal whorls on the skin. And if, you know, for just your typical hooded prep use, you're only gonna see those humps at the 10 and two o'clock position, generally speaking. If you see additional humps down lower on the shaft, you have to be worried about severe curvature. That's your visual clue that that's probably going to be a penis that's bent and, and it's going to need a staged repair. So it doesn't matter where the meatus is, distal, wherever. If you see those weird humps down low, it's almost always going to be a, a pretty severe cordy. It's like I explained it to the, the parents. Did you just say a severe cordy? I did because that's what people are used to. It's like your elbow, though, right? You have this weird whirl back here, and it's that way because you have to have room for it to bend. So if you have a penis that's bent, you kind of get that visual stigmata of the bending that's back there. So if you see it, just be prepared and prepare the family. All right, so what did y'all answer you would do? Okay. So again, I think we have a biased crowd. Good. I think the most common thing that people do, that we see at least, is virus flaps still. That's where they did it, showed you twice. Interesting. So again, I just, I don't think anybody here answered that, but if you run into somebody who talks about it, just, we just don't, you know. Proximal tip. Just shouldn't be done except when the penis, if the penis is straight or has like 15 degrees of curvature or something, even if it's a penis scrotal thing, you can do it proximal tip, and we still would do that. It's just those are rare. I mean, you like, just don't see them very often. You're hardly ever going to see that. Yeah. So that's so we have quit. I mean, I had very good reasons for testing the boundaries of it, for trying to do proximal tips in boys that had curvature and. Bottom line is it, it led to bad outcomes, and if you read the last paper, and you know we just don't do it anymore, and trying to discourage others from doing it. 
And it's kind of the same thing with this. If you can't do a TIF, then you shouldn't do an onlay either because an onlay is just another way of using the urethral plate, right? And so, and then there's the transverse island. Um, and, and, you know, Duckett said he had 15% complication rate and the people at his institution now say that they have over 85% complication. So, you know, the bottom line is that transverse islands are not an effective repair, especially with the idea that you're gonna fix it one time and be done. Almost none of those get a single operation with a good outcome. I, I have not heard that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. The, the thing is that when you, when you really dig under the surface and see what other people have reported, I mean, nobody's reported a 15% you know, complication rate with that. And, and he didn't either. If you read it, his articles, those articles that he wrote on Transverse Island and Magpie um, did not were not what we would consider. They wouldn't get published today. Just like the BRCA repairs. Yeah. I did about this many. And yeah. I kind of had sort of about this many complications. Yeah. I mean, Instead of the thing, I did this many of this type of hypospadias with follow-up of this long with these complications. He didn't write that. He wrote that he did, you know, that he used a transverse ion. And the first patients that he used it on were patients that couldn't get a magpie. Before he thought of the onlay, are you disagreeing with me? Oh, no, I thought you were. Yeah, okay, fair enough. He, he, you know, I mean, I was, I was training during that era, and, and so unless I misunderstood it, he, would, he wanted to do a magpie. He did not like flip-flaps, and he hadn't thought of the onlay yet. And so if he couldn't do a magpie, then he would cut it back and then do the transverse island. So most of his early transverse islands were distals that he couldn't do a magpie on. Um, and then that gradually moved to doing more severe repairs. And again, I, he never published outcomes, especially looking at what people today would use it for, because most people who were doing it today would do it for a proximal repair. Yeah, I didn't see that, but I've heard it before, and correct me if I'm wrong, he taught, instead of tubularizing it and then moving it around, he moves it around, sews it down like a plate. I mean, he's talked about that, yeah, years ago. Did he give any outcomes data? Okay, so why do we keep having discussions like this without outcomes data? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've heard that lecture previously, but I've not seen outcomes from it, or I don't remember it talking about outcomes. This is what many people are still doing, and it, I think it's instructive that, especially since, as you know, we now do routinely, we do a three-step repair for severe hypospadias, and, and some people say, well, how can you justify doing that? Well, there you go. If you do a two-step buyer's flap, 70% of those patients need three or more operations, and most people aren't trying to fix the meatus all the way out to the tip of the gland. So they're making a proximal hypospadias into a distal hypospadias. And, and so in the complication rate in those three series was over 50%. And, and again, that's not counting 
the fact that they, they didn't fix them to the tip. So in our mind, all of those would be a complication because you didn't fix the height to spadius. So in any event, you know, the buyer's flap is an easy thing to do, but it doesn't have good results. And so we discourage that. I quit doing it many years ago. And that's how we got to this, the stack repair. Um, you know, we did, I did two stage repairs for severe hypospadias. I just went from doing buyer's flaps to doing grafts. And I thought that those were doing pretty good. I, I, I brought the, the urethra up to, but not beyond the three corporotomies. That's what I did. And I harvested the graft and I just laid it right on those corporotomies. And that's what I did and then I tubularized those. I didn't measure the grafts or do anything else. So if I, some of them would have some scarring, but I would do my best to take care of that. And if I could roll it into a tube, I rolled it into a tube. And we never checked artificial erections? No, I didn't check erections at the second stage or anything. So I would do the first stage, straighten the penis with the corporotomies, put the graft on top of it, close the skin next to it, come back in six months and roll that into a tube. And, and it usually looks okay if you're just looking at it with your eyeballs. You say, oh, it's fine. And it's a totally different story if you methodically now measure the length and the width because you'll see things that look fine are actually are good. not fine at all. And if you force yourself to make sure you're doing an artificial erection at each and every step, that's where you find that those graphs from a stag repair that you thought were okay and that in the past we tubularized are actually not in a, in a fair number, enough where it's not the right answer to reliably get to a good number in those patients. Yeah, my complication rate when I did it, exactly what I told you before, when I was doing buyer's flaps previously or transverse islands, I had 100% complications. Every patient had a complication. When I started doing the three corporotomies and putting a graft on them, my complication rate dropped to 50%. So that was a big improvement, but it was still like a lot of complications. And it just took time before. And, you know, at that time, I would do six or so of those repairs a year. And so it took a long time to realize what the outcomes were. And so once the volume started going up, and especially when we started working together, now the volume's really high. And, and we learned that, like she said, you need to, we advise measuring the length and width of the graph. So you walk in the operating room, you look at it, but then you measure it, you look back at your previous measurements, and if they're the same, or even sometimes the graft is bigger, then you're going into that operation feeling pretty good. And if it's shrunk by 50%, even though it looks nice and pink and healthy, what's still there, you got to start rethinking what you're going to do that day. It's worth, you know, all of us who trained in any plastic surgery, you know, sort of capacity know that the answer when somebody says, how much do graphs shrink? Yes. The answer is 20%, 20%, right? So the very first time, actually way back when, when we started measuring our graphs, we only measured width. And I went to go analyze the data <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you can't analyze just width. You have to have the length so that you can measure the area, area. of it. But we just didn't start off that way. So then we had to measure and do a whole bunch more. And when we did it, and I ran the numbers the first time to see what the graft contracture rate was, lo and behold, it was 20%. I was like, oh, way, yay, they were right. But when you actually look 
at the numbers, what you find is that most people don't shrink hardly at all. And a few people shrink 50 or 60 or 70%, so that your average is 20%. But what that means is that most people do okay <laughs> and some people do really bad. So it's not that we should be leaving 20% extra graft. Well, how are you even gonna do fit that, that on a penis? You can't make it 20% longer. There's no place for it to get its blood supply. But that is really where we started looking and measuring these things, and that's where we learned don't put grafts on fresh corporotomies. It'll live Sometimes. some of the time, like three out of four times or two out of three times, but if you're in that one out of four that it contracts, it not only kills your graft in that area, but it kills the normal penis skin around it. And if you don't have good skin, you're not gonna make a good looking penis. You're not gonna make a normal penis. It's really hard, and if you don't have symmetric skin, it's gonna increase your rate of glands dehiscence, it's gonna increase your rate of fistula because it'll pull things apart when you don't have skin to close. And so this patient, if you look at the amount of skin, it's, oops. Press the wrong button. Well, that's okay, this one's better. Look from right here at the corona down to where the scrotum starts, that's gonna be less than a centimeter's worth of skin. It's just not enough. And when you straighten that penis with corporotomies, now you need like over three centimeters of skin and usually four centimeters of skin. And you can't ask all of that skin to come around with a flap that's increasing by 75% and ask it to nourish a graft. We're really just asking too much of that penis skin. So that's where we came up with the stack repair. We straighten it with three corporotomies we move the dartos from the skin that's nearby and we just tack it around to keep it kind of blood tight within there. And then we actually reconstruct the foreskin. So we'll make a little oblique incision to those dorsal whorls of skin and move it around. If you don't reconstruct the foreskin, there's a good chance you're not gonna have enough to have graft of prep use at your next step. But if you tack the penis scrotal junctions at three and nine and reconstruct your foreskin like that top picture that you see over there, we almost 100% of the time have enough graft to reach from the tip of the penis all the way down to penis scrotal junction to within the scrotum. Um, and, and now you've got nice graft material that you're putting on a straight penis with good skin. So foreskin reconstruction and straightening at your first step Six months later, grafting. Six months after that, tubularizing. So when you do, so we almost never go in the mouth in a primary patient for a graft. Almost never. If you do it this way, then you'll have enough foreskin here. You already have enough penis skin. You just split this down, open it all up. Make sure it's straight. That's right. Check the erection again and then put in the graft. Almost, I mean, in a primary case, we almost never, in fact, the only ones we ever have to do is the occasional patient that loses some of the skin, which is not common, but it can happen. And so if they, if they slough some of this skin and at the next time there's just not enough, okay, fine, then you still have enough to lay this much graft from the foreskin, and that's what you want to do is put it out there, and then whatever gap is left, you can take that from the upper lip. But, but many people are going into these kind of cases that are learning to do grafts, and they're just 
assuming from the get-go that they're going to have to use oral mucosa for the urethroplasty graft and we never use it. So we do the first step this way without grafting and as you see it almost always comes back looking like this almost always we've never seen anything like that for severe hypospadias when we started doing that we were shocked and if you get good skin and a straight penis then everything else every step of the way your graft is usually going to heal well and then tubularizing those grafts which we used to hate when we did stag repairs, the tubularization phase, because you didn't know when you went in there how hard or it just, you know, and then if you have to regraft, the family would always be devastated. It was all a difficult conversation to have. And we just don't, don't see that anymore. anymore. And if we think this is good for primaries, which we really do, it's even better for these redo, redo, redo cases of which almost all of them have a bent penis, short skin, you straighten it, cover those with dartos, tack their skin, and now their own erections are gonna act as a tissue expander. So because of the new format of this course with the questions and the interactive stuff, we don't have the technical details like we have, but we have all of our YouTube videos. We've got stacks in, in kids primaries, we've got stacks in redo kids, and we've got a stack in a, in a teenager or an adult, a post-pubertal, so that you can see all of those components and it just, you know, we still occasionally will do a stag and a select person, but that's because we do this all the time. If you don't do this very often, just learn how to do tip right, learn how to do stack right, and you will have your bases covered. Yeah, this was also, you know, the master class series we've been doing. We did a whole one on stack recently. So, you know, if you haven't looked at that, go look at it because we went in great detail about every step of that. So you can just type in Hypospadias Masterclass on YouTube and, and it'll take you there. Get to it. So and so this is the bottom line. This this is these are our outcomes from from the most severe hypospadias right here. And the great thing about this is you close the fistulas, we have 95% success, published success in closing fistulas. So Not those, even with a catheter. Yeah, without even a catheter. So almost all of those are gone. And our glands dehiscence success rate is 80% in a, in a redo. So if it dehisses and we go back and do it, eight out of 10 of them are going to be fine. So when you take all of that together, almost every single patient that comes to us with the most severe hypospadias, we fix with the opening at the tip, with a straight penis, and with good, healthy penile skin. And that's what this operation has accomplished that we could not get with transverse islands, with virus flaps, or with stag repairs. Could not achieve it. And now we achieve it in almost every patient. And that's why we think that this is the way that people should start approaching the most severe hypospadias. Because this is that same kid when he's all healed, and I mean, he's got a normal looking penis. Look at that skin. He went from nine to at least 35. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, all of you have heard what, what do you do when you don't have skin? Well, you can, you can make a skin flap, except you don't have skin. That's why you're having the discussion. You can make a scrotal flap and bring scrotum up on the penis, which. Don't is not great when they go through puberty and they have hair growing under there. 
and or you can do a Cecil and come back and take it back out, at which time you're going to fill that gap. Sometimes it'll close, but other times you're gonna have to make some kind of flap or a skin graft. You can try to skin graft at the same time, but you shouldn't skin graft at the same time you do the hypospadias repair because the skin graft won't take reliably, and when it shrinks, it's going to pull apart your hypospadias. So it's a real problem if you don't have enough skin when that you do the final stage. And, and we keep all that in our database, and we had all of these smatterings of patients where we struggled with the skin closure until we started doing this operation, and now it, we... we we just don't have problems with the skin of the penis in boys with even the most severe hypospadias. So that's our course for this year. That's our building. Um, if you have questions, you can always contact us. If you want to come visit us and spend a week and see these cases, you can come anytime and, and do that. Um, we're still going to, I mean, we haven't finished this. We have more to go. But again, in, there's more details about everything we've talked Everything we've talked about today, we've covered in one of these master classes. So you can go and watch that in more detail. So, so again, we have time for discussion. I'll remind you that the course was reformatted this year at the specific request of the AUA. They want the courses to go more in this direction for... It's how they, they want to see learning go that way, so that's why we've done it. They decide every year whether they're going to renew a course for next year based on your evaluation, so please do the evaluations. We would like to continue doing the course if, if it's beneficial to you. So questions or comments that we haven't discussed? Well, we appreciate y'all coming. Oh, yeah, Don't yeah one more thing. Sorry, one more thing. If you haven't seen these, so Come one thing, one. yeah, one thing we haven't talked about, but just one second of your time. We've been shocked. You know, everyone in here, in the course of talking to a parent, mom, they, somebody has said, what causes hypospadias, right? Everybody has heard that. And then you have an answer that you give something, right? It could be genetic, or maybe it's progesterone, or in pest, pesticide, or what, whatever the answer is you give. And w we have learned that what they're really asking when they ask that question, they don't want to hear that. What they want to hear is, did I do something? What did I do that caused it? This is true of all birth defects, including hypospadias. So when a mom or a parent says to you, what causes this to happen? In whatever answer you give, I suggest to you that you also say, and by the way, if you're thinking if you did something to cause this or didn't do something that you should have that caused this, you ask that question, and I promise you, you will see them start crying almost 100%, almost 100%. They are racked with guilt and worry. Even when you talk to them, even a couple of years later, I mean, people come to us for redos, and they ask that, and we have that discussion, they all start crying. The other thing that they're very upset about that we don't think about, because we always say hypospadias, common birth defect, and birth defects are rare. So it's still a rare problem. And, and when parents, when the, the baby's born, and the whoever it is tells to the parents, you're 
son looks healthy except he's got a hypospadias. And don't worry about that, they'll get taken care of. Well, they're like, what is that? That none of them have ever heard of hypospadias. And so they kind of ask their, their parents, the grandparents, and they go, what is that? I've never heard of that. And then their friends are calling, how's your kid, you know? And they're thinking, Should, can, we talk about, can we talk about his privates with our friends? So this is something I never heard at the university because I had like 15 minutes for a new patient visit with hypospadias. And once we started listening, this is, this is like almost 100%, almost every patient. So what do they do? They worry, they already feel guilty that maybe they caused it. They're frightened because they have no idea how common it is. Do other people have this? How come I've never heard of this? What is this? What's going to happen to him, all right? So it's an extraordinarily stressful experience for new parents. That happens 27 times a day in the United States every single day because nobody's heard of it. So that's what this is about. So our charity is Operation Happiness in conjunction with the Urology Care Foundation, the AUA's foundation. So we're next year on April 28th, which happens to be the first day of the AUA, we didn't know that. Um, is going to be Hypospadias Hero Day. And the whole idea is that the kids can dress up like superheroes with a cape and it says on it, Hypospadias Hero Day. And the whole point is to put Hypospadias on it. And then if they wear that around, their friends or neighbors or someone at the mall or something's gonna say, what's Hypospadias? And then the parent can respond, it's a birth defect of the penis. And the other person says, I've never heard of that before. And, and they'll say, well, it's actually a pretty common birth defect. People just don't talk about it. And then if they say, well, how do you know about that? Does your kid have hypospadias? Then mom can say, yeah, he got it fixed. Or she can think to herself, I'm not ready to have that discussion yet. So she can just say, I know people with hypospadias. That's true. She knows her son has hypospadias. So the whole point is, though, that the way we get this thing answered is by making it okay to talk about. Maybe there's few of us in the room that are old enough to remember when you didn't talk about breast cancer. And now NFL players put pink ribbons on their uniforms, right? And so the stigma of breast cancer went away because it became clear you could talk about it. It wasn't shameful to talk about breast cancer. And we need to do the same thing with hypospadias. So if you, you can grab one of these, or I think the exhibits are probably closed. Are the exhibits are still open? We, are, we have a, our booth is there and has this and some capes and stuff you can look at. You can order these, you can order your own, you can do whatever you want. Make stickers, print stickers. out a coloring page. But the whole month of April, anybody who's got hypospadias, just if we want to have an international awareness day, you have to start doing something. You have to pick a day and you have to do it and you got to put it on social media, take some pictures, and then we can go to our representatives and say, come on, we've got 10,000 boys born a year with hypospadias. We need a day to help raise awareness about it but we gotta start somewhere, so. So that's what this is about, and so we have these cards if you wanna take one to remind you, and again, you can go on the internet and look at Operation Happiness, and it has about, so we encourage you though to all do this in your practice. You know, next April, 
encourage people to do something like this so that they have something on them that says the word hypospadias because that's what will begin to change it. So again, thank you all for coming. Thank you in advance for helping with Hypospadias Hero Day. And maybe we'll see you again next year for this. Again, thank you all.